What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheen, joined by my trusty, thankful co-host, Dave Martin-Swagger. Dave, how you doing, man? Oh, so thankful. How's it going, man? Good. Holidays that are... We are, we're, we're in the holidays. I'm not even going to say they're upon us. We are I deep agree. inside the holidays. It's a sprint, the holidays. Yeah. Uh, not only a sprint... For the the season in general, a lot going on, a lot of gifts to buy, a lot of things to plan. But for us, this is this is like the end of the year. Like, figure shit out. Got to got to watch movies. Got to wrap up TV shows. Got to make those lists. How you doing with yours? Oh, doing good, man. Doing good. These are the, the content minds are thriving during the holidays. <laughs> you love to see it. So uh, stay tuned for all the year-end lists, which we love to make. Very excited to do that once again. I think uh, the lists are pretty competitive this year. It's, it was a good year for stuff, uh, as you would know if you subscribed at youtube.com. So. Stay plugging. Stay tuned uh, for that. Yeah, we're going to have an end-of-year list coming up. Um, hopefully, we'll have a few things to pad out the pod next week, because it is starting to hit that end-of-season lull for a lot of things, but... You know, a couple of big things, movies and albums on the horizon. TV's pretty much wrapped up for the year, but that's okay. It's, it's been a hell of a TV year, which we'll be talking right. about. But Dave, today we got uh, a few albums, a big TV show, which I think we'll both be talking about whenever we do our end of year list. And then Spoilers. some movies as well. But why don't we start today with a K-pop singer, BB, dropping. Is, is this the debut album for yes. BB? Uh, you know, she, she's been signed for a few years. I think 2017, she, uh, initially signed to her label, but this is the first album. And, uh, Dave, I, I'm really interested to hear if you liked this because, uh, I had some, it had a very specific vibe to me. And I want to know if you had the same one. So tell me first, did you like this? Uh, yeah, I didn't really know what to expect too much. You know, this is the first debut album for BB, but her first release of any kind really uh, besides like one single on 88 rising. You know, I think she has a K-pop background, but it's kind of shifted a little beyond that and is now part of 88. And that's how I became aware of her. She was featured on the, uh, one of those head in the clouds EPs that 88 put out earlier in the year and was at their Coachella set, of course, this year, which got a lot of attention, a lot of love. So someone I was keeping an eye out for, but still didn't really have, you know, too high expectations didn't really know what to expect and i was definitely struck with the uh production on this it definitely surprised me quite often um i don't know if i necessarily love bb vocally on this but in like reading more about the album the concept she was going for uh is pretty interesting so yeah i thought it was uh for for a, br- a breezy listen i think there was enough like switch ups with the production of the instruments that i was at least entertained the whole time yeah so th- this album low life princess noir i thought was interesting in a lot of ways but the the vibe i kept getting from it was 50 shades of gray soundtrack you know it had this like <laughs> i don't even know like the like the the beat and the, the uh like I don't even know, like the vibe of each song. I just felt like I was like slithering through them a lot of the time. And like, man, it, it felt like a few of these songs were just pulled straight from the soundtrack. If you had asked me to guess, uh, I still thought it was pretty good, but it was really hard for me to shake that feeling. Um, with that said, though, a few of the tracks that I thought really stood out, 
Um, Animal Farm was one of those songs that had a like really strong Fifty Shades of Grey vibe to mm-hmm. me. Like the electric but, guitar solo at the end there, out of nowhere. Yeah, so so cool that like switch up. But I think it's that like beginning that where it's like and it's like just like the violins like kind of slowly in the background it's great but yeah that electric guitar at the end was a a choice way to end it and her vocals were really like shining by the end so i really appreciated that one um and then another track that i really liked was um moto speed 24 Mm -hmm. Um, i thought that was a really solid track just the the next song but i felt like those two back to back were probably the highlight of the album for me yeah, I like those ones as well. Moto Speed, you have like just really catchy, I think, kick drums. It just n- nice, nice beat there, nice vibe. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so many like like flourishes on this that I just wasn't expecting. Like right off the jump with a uh, uh, BB Vengeance, which is a reference to the Park Chan Wook movie Lady Vengeance. On BB Vengeance, you have like drums reminiscent of reggaeton. I was like. Where did this come from? Is this a Bad Bunny song? What's going on here? <laughs> Pretty cool. Then right after that, of course, you get the Animal Farm guitar at the end. You get the really fun drums on Moto Speed. It, it, it just kind of keeps going. Like Love Life, uh, sorry, Low Life Princess. Her flow on that is really fun, but that's like a trap song. She's like rapping on that. And I was like, God, there's this. She's just bouncing around, doing all kinds of stuff, you know. Um, on Johto at the end. I thought her vocal breakdown was actually like really good. I think that was probably the best like singing performance from BB on the whole record. I like that one. And then the last song too, City Love, just pretty impressive instrument display once again. So for a breezy listen, you know, someone I wasn't really checking for too 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 closely. Um, I was definitely struck with the instruments, and I would be interested to hear her pop up on the next. 88 Rising and the Clouds album for sure. I feel like she could quite easily pair with some of her uh, new label mates. But uh, yeah, I think in terms of like pop music or K-pop music or anything, it's like I think like this like kind of like specific like aesthetic that she's really going for with this album. I guess it does stand out. You know, I think I would still like to hear I think a bit more consistency from her vocally. But overall, like I said before did enough i think to keep me entertained with all the flourishes yeah for sure you know i agree with you on Jado. i thought that was probably one of the more catchy like pop songs that we had on there um i thought that was really fun and yeah just to circle back to um you know moto speed 24 near the end there's this like strobe vocal like flourish to it which i thought was like really interesting and just to kind of like highlight your point that some really interesting choices in production throughout this. Also, just the the song "Wet Nightmare." Um, <laughs> goddamn, what a title! Like, <laughs> uh, incredibly sexual, but in like a way that I never would have expected. So I, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, it, it seems like she has some some interesting ideas and, and perspectives. So uh, definitely someone we're going to stay tuned to, and uh, you should stay tuned to our Nostalgia Best of 2022 playlist on Spotify. Hit that follow and uh, stay up to date with all the music that we're talking about this year, including the new Stormzy album. This is what I mean. Mm. I guess this is technically like the third like Stormzy album. Correct. But man, listening to this album, definitely different than what I expected to hear from him. But 
the reason I, I, I said I guess this is the third because he feels like such a more established part of the music scene and just like so well respected. And I think an album like this, though unexpected, certainly just speaks to his vision and I think the the respect he has to do something like this. You know, mm-hmm. obviously yeah. the label was not pushing him to just kind of put out the same old thing. They want him to be himself. And I think uh, this is what I mean. While surprising, certainly something to uh, to talk about and respect. Well, how do you feel about it? Yeah, I think that's all right. Um, I'll be honest. I definitely struggled with this album personally, just because Ooh. it is such a stark departure from the showy qualities that you expect from Stormzy that we've come to know over the last like eight years. Um, not to say that there isn't merit to this really introspective and personal album that he has delivered us here. I'm just not as invested in in this because it's just not as not as fun to me. I don't know. Like I, like I, I saw a lot bangers. of love. I saw a lot of love for the album. I did, you know. But like, even like the the, the promo single "Mellow Made Me Do It" isn't even on here. You know, I like that song quite a bit. That song was pretty fun. You know, you got like Jose Mourinho and Usain Bolt in the music video. He's you know talking his shit like he does, and nope doesn't fit the vibe of this record so i understand why it's not here but um yeah i mean i like stormzy a lot i really do and he's definitely earned the right to just do an album like this and mm-hmm. i think it is cool to see him show the ability to diversify in such a, i think a stark and complete way that he did sonically with this where i mean just plainly like if you think about the most famous Stormzy songs, the biggest Stormzy hits, Stormzy is a swagger-filled rapper. That is what he does. That is how he blew up. That is why he is the most commercially successful grime artist in the history of Britain. That is why he is one of the biggest artists in Britain, period. You know, And he really didn't do that this time around. And you know, it's, it's a hats-off thing. To me but it's not really uh what i would like to hear from him so that's just me but i mean how how did you feel about it what did you, what did you take away because i mean there's no vasi bop on no <laughs> this is what no, i mean you know it, it's quite different no there there's really not you know i think throughout, throughout the album i was kind of waiting for something to just like completely grab me like that and so through through the first listen i was a little disappointed then I was like, you know, I just want to kind of keep playing through this, especially because I was listening to a lot of it when I was like doing other stuff. So it was like good background music to have, like pretty like, like even though it has like Afro beat to it and there's definitely some like nice production flourishes, nothing like that's super energizing or grabbing your attention. But then the more I was Mellow. like listening, yeah, listening to it while driving, listening to it while like, um, you know, like typing up notes for work and things like that. I was like, mm. you know, like that, that really caught me. I, I love that like production choice. And I think no song um, like caught me that way more than the title track. This is what I mean, right? The first time I listened to it, the beginning is pretty like stark, just really stormsy kind of rapping. And then slowly these like vocals start like building around it. And the vocals are just kind of like shrieks or like little like yelps, but the way that they build it up and then cut it back out is just like so well crafted and like unique. And I was like, man, he's really like, envisioning something and then it just explodes right there's like that 
like explosion of like the drums and then the vocals are kind of like really filling in the background i was like oh okay i really appreciate that although on the first listen it didn't really grab me the same same as like the the first track uh fire and is it fire and water i believe um where you know it's it's pretty low uh pretty mellow pretty like toned back just kind of him uh rapping for the first half of the song and then the beat really kicks in and listening to that in the car i was like oh man this is really beautiful and i think what stood out to me more on each listen was just how the the band or or the musicians he was working with to craft this were all just like on the same page and really like buying into his vision because it feels so well crafted and like mm-hmm. there, I have so much uh, appreciation for it. Although, like you said, I don't know if there's a track on here that I'm gonna like point back to and be like, that's that's Stormzy's like song right there. You know, it's not there's no bangers. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was pretty, I, I noticed it like a lot, like right away, there's like tons of background vocals on this album, right? Eventually we start getting to full on like church choir in the background, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes it's our good friend Sampha doing background vocals, oh, yeah. gets his own song on this, you know, nice, uh, circle completion moment when he did the song with Hetty one, uh, two years ago, speaking of UK rap, uh, Love me some Sampha. I think even like Thames and some other like Afro pop artists are in the background too. Like, I always love flourishes like that. I think the thing that just really like like gets stuck in my gears with this is just that like it's like Stormzy singing and like Stormzy being like really like gentle, you know. And on one hand, again, admirable to see him open up in uh, such a personal way. Really speaking about uh more or less his. Uh, love life and the ups and downs he has gone through that um through you know public fraud public relationship and whatnot that's all cool but it's just i just don't I'm not really here for stormzy singing i don't know i just really couldn't get into it like he's he's fine fine enough at it and like you said the album is really well constructed it sounds great for what he's going for it's just that like i just can't kind of can't get past the, the stormzy of it all you know you think of a song <laughs> like like, please, you know, big storms line on that, right? Please leave Megan alone. Of course, referencing Megan Markle. Uh, my presidents are black, but I'm Serena for you, Sharapovas. You know, these are these like uh, wordplay that I expect from Stormzy. But I just think like he did these kind of ideas and songs better on the last record. Heavy is the head. You think of a song like Superheroes, for example, which is both a, like a Stormzy like brand song but also has, I think, like a bigger message about it. And I still, I think, liked like the message songs on This Is What I Mean the most, but I just don't know if they really stack up to some of his past uh, attempts at this, I guess. I think uh, the end of the record, I thought, actually was the best part of it to me. I think it finished pretty strong with like Holy Spirit and uh, I Got My Smile Back. Uh, I like those quite a bit. But yeah, I mean, I was just like, man... I want you Throw to David fucking Bone. dominate this shit, man. Come on, dude. You're 29. You don't got to be this personal yet, dude. I want you to be having fun still. What the hell? He's dominating a different way. You know, I, I really think like um, he, we know that he can do the bangers. Like, I, I think for him, yeah. this was something he wanted to do to prove not only to himself, but to other people yeah. like, you know, I'm, I'm more than just this one note type of artist. Um I do think a song like My Presidents Are Black, that's probably like the biggest like banger on this album or like up tempo song, not very up tempo at all. But 
probably one of my favorite like uh tracks on there i also <clears throat> i agree I, I think i got my smile back was really strong um hide and seek i thought was a really beautiful track although one of those like more mellow personal ones um need you like a very personal like love love song i thought that was pretty great and yeah always great to hear sampa pop up so like yeah. I, I left pretty satisfied man like where's I, the sampa album man give us it's the coming. sampa album it's been so long of course you know the kendrick feature this year it. on father time amazing you know yeah where <laughs> the streets are calling for the sampa record hopefully 2023 uh yeah i mean i don't know just for me like Stormzy already proved that he was a multifaceted artist and he had already broken down all the boundaries as a headliner of Glastonbury, <laughs> headliner at Reading, multiple number one albums, Brit Award album of the year. Like he is so accepted in British music culture. So he didn't have to do this for anyone else. He did this for him. It's clearly a cathartic exercise for him. I'd definitely be curious to see what, what the mix is on the tour that will follow this record. Of course, the heavies the head tour didn't actually get to happen until last year, 2021, due to COVID. So I'm sure I'm sure he'll just still get back out there and tour this album. I would still will, will seek him out if he comes to the U.S. again uh, to see him perform. That'd be awesome. But yeah, I wonder like what that what that mix would be, you know? Because when I think of like famous like clips of Stormzy playing, you know, like when Dave would bring him out as a guest at like a at, like Reading and Leeds or something, like he lights obviously the crowd on fire. Like they love him there. But they love him there when he's doing Clash and Vossy Bop and stuff, right? And I don't know, like, what is the vibe when he's doing, like, you know, some of these some of these joints, you know? Uh, then again, the Burna Boy hit from the last album was a pretty big hit, too. So perhaps he has a all-encompassing fan base already. I'm not sure. But, uh, yeah, shout-out Stormzy. Still a big fan. But this wasn't my favorite. But I'm glad you liked it. I also have a lot of faith that, uh, you know, similar to, uh, like, like Billie Eilish, for example, right? Some of those songs are newer songs that we weren't as like into. Yeah. You play them live, you just find a way to like bring the energy to him. He's definitely going to be that way. So I have no doubt for that. Uh, Stormzy, still good. He He's going to be around for a long time. So uh, oh, yeah. enjoy, enjoy the, the different things we get from him. But let's, uh, let's move on to Andor. One of the most anticipated shows of the year one of the i would say most well received shows of the year and man um i think after some of the things we've gotten from disney uh marvel wise some even some of the (laughs) even some of the star wars shows that we've gotten this year and obi-wan not the best star wars tv year (laughs) not the best star wars tv year this was like just a breath of fresh air and and man this is exactly, exactly why you just let creators fucking cook, right? You just they just gave Tony Gilroy like the the keys to this this story and let him make the story he wanted to, and he's he fucking not only hit the ball out of the ballpark, but like into a different fucking stratosphere. Like th- this was so much more than I ever thought a it, it, uh, Disney Star Wars property could be, and I'm, it makes mm-hmm. me really excited for w- what's to come in the future. How did you feel about it? Just kill me or take me with you, goddammit. You know what this is, Pat? This is the feeling of vindication. You would talk about this, what you just said, for so long. You gotta let the artists make their art. And you know what would be great? If those artists that you're letting make the art happen to be, you know, 
one of the most acclaimed and prolific screenwriters of the 21st century, Antonio Gilroy. Yeah. You know what's really cool about Star Wars? When adults make it and uh, treat it just a little differently than how it's been treated before. Not that how it's been treated before is bad. I am a huge Star Wars nerd. I love this shit out of Star Wars in all forms. But oh my god, was this just like... Man, it was just a blast every single week to be with this show. Not only like the longer runtime, 12 episode season, but the structure of it, right? Like four distinct three episode arcs was, I don't know, it just, there's just like, a, I think, a high floor to Tony Gilroy making anything. That's kind of obvious. But I don't know, like the, the competence that you just felt at all times being in this world and just, I think, being so evident with the writing, with the character work on the show that it's just a bit more thoughtful and engaging for it uh, than you expect from most IP storytelling. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I thought it was really spectacular and there's a few moments that I think are just like, like high end, like star Wars, like period. And I think anticipation for season two and the narratives that they're setting up for season two character deaths that we know are going to happen one way or another, like they are, they are going to destroy us in season two, which will likely be in 2024. And man, it's going to be a tough wait, but I, I thought this was beyond my wildest expectations. And that was coming from having a lot of affinity for Tony Gilroy, having a lot of love for rogue one. And still, I think the expectations were really, like really raise it's kind of unbelievable still it it's such a it's such it's so funny to think about this show being made in the wake of um the rise of skywalker right (laughs) this like complete hedge by this media company that's like no we actually can't take the risk that ryan johnson wanted us to take we have to go right back to the same thing we've been doing because we just got to keep our money maker going, baby. We just got to like keep giving the, the same slop we've always given. And man, to then just let Tony Gilroy take this, this story and just be like, you know how they fucking got to Luke Skywalker on the fucking graves of all these people from around the galaxy. Right. Who people you'll never know about normal people, you know, and it's so great. And it, it's just like incredible to like be in this world and not only that, but it's so fucking creative. Like watching the prison, right? At first, I was like, "All right, they're going to prison. Like, cool. Like a prison break storyline." That's that, yeah, that's how know. I felt too. When uh, we, when Cashin gets arrested, before. when Cashin gets arrested, like you know, six year term, and like, oh, can't wait to watch him break out. Let's keep it moving. Exactly. You don't expect the, the the three episode prison arc to be as thrilling and emotionally thought provoking as it ended up being. And and just completely unexpected in terms of structure. Like, how did he ever think of the like electrical floor to like be the way that the prison like keeps people in line, or having this like built-in like game like slave like system within the the prison? Mm-hmm. Um, just like so unique, um, something that is completely creative. And yeah, like you talked about the emotional like arc of of Cassian in that right way, right? Where he finally starts to figure out how to like use his skills to be a leader. But not only that, to like be the person to like identify who's good at what and actually like 
pass the ball and not have to rely just on himself to do things like um, just completely amazing. And obviously you get a amazing <laughs> like three episode arc from uh, the goat. Um, Andy Serkis. Man, yeah, Andy Serkis. Just like boy. the whole time. Um, yeah, so I, I thought that was incredible. And also just the way that you come to like be so invested in all the different parts of the show. You know, I mentioned the prison, but some of the most intriguing scenes were with Mon Mothma and just like mm-hmm. sitting in a sitting in a room, just talking to people. Uh, it's very Game of Thrones ish in that sense, where like yeah, power centric. Yeah, you have like the the action scenes, then you have the the political scenes, but just completely uh, captivating in all senses. And Genevieve O'Reilly just absolutely crushed it. Like, yeah, hearing Tony Gilroy talk about it and be like. Yeah, so I was told like I couldn't like change that casting, so I just like had Genevieve. I heard she was pretty good, but like she was incredible. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> it's just like awesome to hear it all like come together and how I think the the way it was crafted just like elevated everything about the show. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think the the way the prison arc ends, where you have uh, Kino give the oh, yeah. speech using Cashin's words. And like you have all the, the the prisoners, you know, the one way out chant Ugh. gets all the way to the end, and Kino's like can't swim, you know. He knew the swim. whole time he couldn't fucking swim. He knew the whole time they were on a water planet floating above it <laughs> on their prison, and he did it and anyway. Like, it's you know the tragedy of it all is like so great, you know, for a character you met three hours ago, you know. And I think just the characterization is just incredibly strong, and and that that's what. I think shines through and that a same episode you get to me, the moment of the season, which is the Luthan speech Stellan to Skarsgård. his mole at the ISB Stellan Skarsgård. Amazing. But like that, that was like a jaw dropping thing to me. Like you watch his mole, you know, follow the trail, take the elevator down many levels. And then he opens up and you just see Luthan there on some catwalk, with a cape flying in the wind, the most Star Wars thing I've ever yep. fucking seen. Looking like And then Darth what Vader. happens? Skarsgård chews the shit out of some amazing Gilroy writing. And what what is he actually talking about? Only the thesis of the entire show, the <laughs> meaning of rebellion, the whole meaning of Star Wars. It's incredible. It's what the coolest sacrifice? thing I've ever seen. I loved it so much. He's got such a perfect voice for that role, too. But yeah, man, th- that was a show stopping like monologue to end the episode. Th- that episode, I think it's episode 10 is like yeah. potentially episode of TV for the year. Just like it's up there in the conversation. That's in a really strong uh, I agree. year of, of ep- episodes of TV, but just TV in general. Um, yeah, Skarsgård, I think, is my like pretty clear favorite part of the show. And I mean, like so many parts of it are great, but like him basically playing three different characters, you know, the, the guy who runs the antique shop, the mm-hmm. um, Luthan, who's like kind of a dick on the outside, just trying to like stay alive and like fuck people over. And then the one who's a little more like schmoozy, like team leader. It's like very interesting to see him like navigating all these different worlds and just kind of putting on different masks to, make this all come together and to actually like see the the plan right like ha- to see that there was like this like idea of how he was going to like spark this like uh i don't know rebellion from across all these different planets just, social unrest just like get yeah. it going basically and and but like and then also to have these things like happen to like 
provide a spark of like hope that they could fight back just incredible and then i think you actually get that even more highlighted by the uh the speech at the end of the, the season by fiona shaw's uh Mar- late, marva. Late character marva um which is just like an incredibly um thrilling like end to the season not only is is her speech like fiona shaw just like crushing it but then like everything that comes after that just feels so it felt like real you know like you you felt like you were in this this moment of, of rebellion and of people just kind of like fighting back and I, I was just like i was completely blown away by by the ending of the season mm-hmm. um so just overall i was just like man from start to finish i, I think the first like two episodes the first one's pretty good second episode's a little slow they're actually going to be showing these on um uh disney or uh and not nbc abc i'm sorry abc uh, hulu freeform fx all the disney properties that might have already happened i believe that was over this past weekend ah. um which was an obvious uh attempt at the reportedly l- lower ratings and viewership for Andor compared to other stuff which of course is uh unfortunate but i think I'm quite confident that this show in the year it'll have off the air will continue to grow an audience once people find it. Cause mm-hmm. I think it's hard to find anyone who was like put in front of Andor and wasn't compelled to at least some degree. Like it is incredibly well made. And yeah, I think Lucasfilm and Disney, they're obviously very proud of this show, the way they've talked about it and marketed it and stuff. So I'm not really too concerned about that. Um, but yeah, uh, Man, speaking to the Luthan stuff you were just saying, right? You have two, which could have been on the surface, fan service scenes where Luthan goes to see our old buddy Saw Guerrera, played mm-hmm. by Forrest Whitaker, who of course played him in Rogue One, a character created on the Clone Wars, people know. But those scenes, you know, it's like the, it's a great way to see, like, I think the many philosophies and the com- complicated uh, splinter nature of the rebellion and i think that was really great you know uh when they both kind of come to terms that they're gonna sacrifice their fellow rebel krieger for the greater good for war as saw puts Mm -hmm. it krieger you know just like let him let him go to keep keep their cover keep keep their momentum you know a sacrifice and it's like you know it's kind of like a gutting thing to hear them talk about someone you've actually never even met but just like the way they're talking about like basically how zero sum uh, a fight against the empire is it's like i think that kind of stuff like really grounds you in the the stakes of something that in lesser hands can just come across as overtly familiar or just kind of one-dimensional good versus bad right but like mm-hmm. andor is so steeped in the gray and still so steeped in like what the right thing to do is not immediately clear and that's why I think I just respond to it so well to see, I think, this kind of approach to, like, dramatic storytelling in the world I love so much. Like, it's just it's just so fulfilling to me. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, couldn't agree more. Um, you know, a couple of, uh, of people that I think really grew on me throughout the season, a couple of characters that grew on me throughout the season um, would be... Uh, uh denise go who plays deidre miro um, oh god yeah she's great i thought i thought at first i was going to completely despise her character and i think right. she 
even though obviously she's the villain of the season seeing and her... established as a bad person she really enjoyed yes. uh torturing bix and whatnot and what a completely um like creative torture method like i don't know how yeah. Tony sonic that, but... torture emotional yeah. distress kind of thing um i thought that was uh really thought really thought provoking but um yeah i thought she was great uh deidre throughout the season and really grew on me and and seeing her whole like back and forth with cyril especially how he like saves her at the end i'm interested to see how that like plays out in this next section um but then uh faye Mar- marseille who plays uh val val yeah um, man she really grew on me throughout the season when you first see her when cassian gets put onto the team there um yeah, on aldani yeah it seems just kind of like yeah you know like she she's all right uh aldani it's it's funny to think about it feels like so long ago i know i was just how thinking far that. the season comes you know but you get uh will um oh, man what's his name uh no sorry alex lothar plays will on uh, yes. sex education but he's incredible in this show too bad that he gets uh uh, tragically right. killed but what an awesome like side character right a, a philosopher in the world of star wars we've literally never heard of such a thing separated and, from the force and having that be like a key aspect of the genesis of the rebellion yes an ideas man like again it's simple but it's executed at such an excellent level because that's mm-hmm. who's making the show yep completely agree um but yeah Faye marseille especially as she keeps popping up around mothma uh, right when you realize they're related you know like there's extra layers added to val post aldani that you're not expecting and just seeing how like her undercover she has to like be this type of person that she just totally is not right and and obviously a lot of that is is what's going on with the rebellion in the show but like how mothma's like can you just go home be a rich kid for like a few weeks just like you know play your cover up a little bit like i just die down (laughs) Yeah, I just like loved seeing all that, and she she really grew on me. So those two, um, Deidre and right. Val. Were I mean, how two, about like, Val's relationship with Cynthia? With yes. just a few scenes, a few side eyes, a few gestures. To me, one of the most developed queer relationships Disney's ever done. They love to tr- talk about, you know, their first gay ex character, however they do it, but they actually <laughs> did it here with real work in a compelling manner, and if that relationship goes bet poorly like i unfortunately think it will in season two you're gonna feel that because they put in the work quite efficiently at that you know already showing you how they're gonna be driven apart by the uh different priorities they have you know um yep. to get that with the people that again like you said you just meet them and you think they're just part of the dirty dozen the aldani crew and like mm-hmm. there's just so much more to it uh it's, it's just quite satisfying i mean shout out Evan moss Baccarat from the aldani heist Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously he's having a great TV year between uh, this and uh, the bear obviously good for him but um, I mean the Adani heist in and of itself I think is incredibly thrilling um, mm-hmm. but just you don't expect like that to be like top the way it is when you get the prison scene you know you get the finale arc which I, think, I don't think the finale arc is the strongest arc of the series but I think it's still a pretty effective finale for the season mm-hmm. we had and I think Cashin Ending, ending the series, going up to Luthen, you know, being like, "Hey, kill me or take me with you." I'm fucking sick of this shit. Yeah. And then you you juxtapose that with what you know actually happens to Cashin and what how what happens? Do we assume most of these rebels nothing good in the in the end, even if it's for the greater cause? It's uh, 
again, just, I think, really compelling uh, place to be in a universe that we've said for years is just the ultimate sandbox and opportunity to really engage people with genre storytelling, but they really did it with Andor. They they certainly did. Uh, can't speak highly enough about it. Um, any last thoughts, Dave? I, I think I think we're gonna be talking about it again very soon. Yeah. Again, I just want to say it again. Like I love Forrest Whitaker's line readings as Saw. It's just amazing. Krieger! Yeah, he's great. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's really great. I, I love Skarsgård's whole vibe in this. When when he's actually in like the Luthan like rebel mode, like yeah. his voice. What did I sacrifice? What did I sacrifice? Right. How about peace? Like I just was like, yes, fucking yeah. get him. <laughs> what a peace. Uh, so good. Also, by the way, him just being a fucking boss and fucking up a tractor beam and escaping oh, oh. in his ship. Of Incredible course. moment. <laughs> Incredible moment. Also, like, never wanted to like go by a Star Wars like action figure more than I want to get that ship. Um, just go. incredible. Yeah, so. The lasers were sick, huh? Yeah, that that <laughs> just what a moment. Anyways, uh, we'll be talking about Andor very soon, I think. But let's uh let's move on to the big screen, Dave, where Timothy Chalamet back on the big screen, covered in blood, <laughs> naked on Dave's screen. Back with this least. guy, Luca Guadagnino. Call me by your name. Reunion for Timmy and Michael Stahlberg as well. That's not peach on his face, though, Dave. Tell me about bones and all. No, Timmy doesn't eat the peach. In bones and all, but he does eat some human flesh because this is a cannibal story. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. We talked about a cannibal story not too long ago this year with Fresh, Daisy Edgar Jones, Sebastian Stan, who Searchlight film. People might remember that. There's another cannibal movie that just came out too. I don't even remember. But this is like the third of the high profile ones this year. And yeah, bones and all. Uh, quite a throwback kind of story. But I think it's uh, interesting and compelling for a number of reasons. Firstly, like I said, the Luca Timmy reunion is great. Luca Guanino seems to really bring a lot out of Timothy Chalamet, who I think everyone knows has been tapped for the last five years as one of you know the next great American movie star, really the, the leader of his acting generation. I think acclaim and clout he has earned uh, through just great. Uh, choices and just great performances you know and can't wait to see him back again in dune next year but something like this is i think what really won people over to the chalamet experience in 2017 in lady bird and call me by your name because there's just a, a certain magnetism to the way he acts as a performer and that being said he's actually not like the lead of bones and on the lead is taylor russell who is another, of course, rising uh, acting talent. I, I, I think very fondly of her performance in the second half of Waves, for example. But uh, pairing them together, uh, I think really, uh, really sparks because Taylor Russell is also quite up to the challenge and can hold her own against someone with like the wattage of Chalamet. And that was really cool to see. And uh, Bones and All, the 1980s set story. So in the past, no phones different vibe and it's really you know kind of an on the road of romance story where you get uh i think quite cleverly shown uh introduced to the cannibal side of the story through taylor russell's character it and in her travels she encounters chalamet's character who is a fellow cannibal and they kind of become kindred spirits 
uh, and lovers trying to find I think purpose in meaning in their lives and it's a I think quite an intelligent movie because it's not really about like the gore or the horror I wouldn't call it a scary movie at all like if, if you don't like the sight of blood it'll, it'll bother you but it's bloody but I don't think it's scary nor is it like uh, indulgent in that regard it's almost kind of like less about cannibalism than I expected or at least less about the act of like watching someone eat somebody else that's not really like what this movie's trying to do it's more about I think like like a self-loathing story like these characters know that they are not normal and there's a fucked up thing about them that they can't really control and like that's what this movie really is getting into about how these characters can find that inner peace and what even that means and I think Timmy towards the end of the movie like I think really communicates that really well um yeah I mean in the process you meet some other characters that cross paths with them uh, Mark Rylance plays a incredibly effective uh creepy character let's leave it at that uh he's really nailed it and then Michael Stahlberg uh, as well, reunion with Timmy and Luca, uh, plays a different different character, but also a bit unsettling. And I think that's what's kind of cool about Bones and All is like it'll like leave you in these unsettling and uncomfortable positions as a viewer, but it doesn't ever really, I think, take advantage of that because it really is more invested in like these two characters' relationship and their personal journeys and how I think messy and uh, not straightforward that kind of stuff is. So. Yeah, it's uh, uh, by by its nature, not for everyone. It's still about cannibalism, but uh, I I liked it quite a lot, and I would recommend it. It hasn't had a big box office, but I'm sure people who are interested will will seek it out when it's available to them. Uh, and I would certainly recommend it. Luca and Timmy is a unbeatable combo. Do you think this was a, a nod to Army Hammer for them? <laughs> no, bad joke. I I, I uh, made that connection. Uh, when the Army Hammer stuff did happen, it is honestly hilarious that that is uh, <laughs> as on the nose. It, <laughs> but that's our reality. Like it's kind of yep. kind of amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. Shout, uh, how about Army Hammer? You know, <laughs> he, he, he <laughs> could have been in this movie, perhaps in a different life. But alas, here we are. Yeah, uh, who knows if we'll see him again. But anyways, uh, I can't wait to check this out. Uh, love Luca, love Timmy. Uh, them together is great and. Like you said, I think uh, um, Taylor Haven or Taylor Russell is uh, definitely someone just to continue buying stock in. Seems like she's poised for a breakout um, in the near future. But Dave, let's talk about somebody who has completely broken out, and not only broken out, but made I don't know ten to fifteen of the most important movies of all time, and that's <laughs> Steven Spielberg. Uh, Perhaps the signature director uh, in of, the history of uh, Hollywood. Yeah, o- old Steve. I mean, Him? I would say he's. I say he's like top three, right? Maybe top two. I mean, Hitchcock above him. I mean, I feel like you have to put Spielberg above Hitchcock, though, because of the populism so. of his movies. You know. Yeah, the populism is the argument, right? I think Hitchcock. Definitely. He's like the heart of heart of Hollywood. Steven Spielberg, great movies that are also widely, widely loved by many. You know, I think yes. it's kind of everything, you know. And the fable people, people know Steven Spielberg, thirty something films in, <laughs> we're back again. And man, has he been working, huh? West Side yeah. Story, The Post, 
a uh, bunch of shit, you know? And he's got another movie <laughs> coming out soon. He's making a bullet with Bradley Cooper based off the cop that Steve McQueen famously played in one of his uh, few film roles way back in the day. So uh, we love Steven Spielberg, like Ridley Scott. He's getting older, but he is not slowing down at all. It's great. So the fact that he wanted to make an autobiographical film about his him himself that also is applicable to the love and mystique of movies and the heart of cinema. Sure. I don't fucking care. He's been making a lot of good shit. Why not? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I really love that. He basically was just like, I've made, this is my 35th movie. I'm making a movie just talking about how fucking brilliant I was throughout my whole entire life that I've always been this good at making movies. That That's pretty much like, one way that you could look at this that he's just like i have always been great at this i was so fucking gifted wasn't yeah I? <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> that's that's exactly what i think uh people who want to be cynical about the movie could take away <laughs> in reality i think the fablemans is a, a very thoughtful um and well-told uh story about Spiel- spielberg's life but more importantly like his relationship to his parents and how that uh those individual relationships, I think, shaped his movie making abilities and directing abilities, but even more so how um, I think they shaped and influenced his life and, and his the way he came to like just understand the world in general and interact with the world. And there's so many like layers to the Fableman, right, that I, I think have. Uh, I think it really left me just like. Admiring spielberg's uh movie crafting maybe even more than some of his more popular movies you know you think about the idea that like the the beginning of the movie is framed as he goes to see his first movie and is terrified by the train so he starts Mm -hmm. making movies as a way to like control this fear and uh that's exactly what he's almost doing like an eight-year-old with with a a camera he begged to get for christmas or sorry exactly And now we're watching a movie about probably one of the scariest and most challenging parts of his, at least his teenagehood, if not his adulthood. And it's like mm-hmm. we are now Spielberg watching this, watching him like process his trauma in real life. And yeah. it's uh, pretty interesting to think about that, as well as just like what he's trying to say about both of his parents. I think there's a lot to like dig into there, um, as well as his uncle. You know, I think his uncle is interesting in this too. So a lot to get into, but. Did you did you enjoy the Fablemans, Dave? Definitely, definitely. And honestly, I was going in with like I think kind of mixed feelings. I didn't watch hmm. the trailer, and like knowing kn- knowing what it was about broadly, I was like, huh. I mean, honestly, I'm gonna watch it. I'm sure it'll be good. I'm sure it'll be really well made. It's Spielberg, right? And that that that's kind of where, where it stopped for me. And I think quite quickly the movie actually did grab me, and I was like, oh wow, this is I think a lot more engaging and thought provoking than I expected it to be. Um, you know, this is <laughs> coincidentally very similar to what Armageddon Time is for James Gray, another autobiographical film about a successful director's childhood and how it led to their uh, looks on life. Now, Fablemans, I think, is quite different because it's much more focused on the director's relationship with cinema itself. Armageddon Time is, I think, a bit more societal and higher level. Um, but I, I was quite engaged, I think, with that family dynamic right away. Like when you watch young Sammy watching uh, Cecil B. DeMille's The Greatest Show on Earth and being fucking shook, dude. 
hilarious. Hilarious him going back in the car and Paul Dano and Michelle Williams' parents are like telling him stuff and he just can't hear anything. I, like <laughs> that kind of brought me back as like an old school like a, like slapstick humor type vibe of, of the past. That was really fun. But I think it really I think takes like the next level up once we meet um adolescent Sammy, like teenage Sammy. Yes. Um mm. and we get the uh of course the new actor playing him which would be Gabriel LaBelle. Um He's great. Yeah. W- once we get there, I think the movie just, you know, like it really like ratches it up, right? Like the family dynamics get much more uh challenging and the personal stuff going on in Sammy's life. Yeah, a lot of coming of age stuff you might be familiar with, but I think it is conveyed in quite compelling ways and then there's the set pieces of the Fablemans are like watching young young Sammy be a director at a young age and like they're like these huge set pieces right watching him have all his boy scout buddies be soldiers and stuff mm-hmm. or watching him direct his high school class on the beach in Santa Cruz you know it's like really like engaging scenes that oh. on their face are quite simple and 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 small because they're fucking child making a movie but like damn like i, I was like I was like really, really entertained watching like the movie making stuff. Yeah, I mean, how how could you not be when you know you're not only watching him like put together these movies and and that are still really impressive, but you're kind of viewing them as like, oh well, a kid made these movies, but then seeing the way that the people in his life are responding to what he's doing is just so much more like intriguing about it, right? Seeing these people who are seeing themselves in a different light than they ever might have imagined themselves seeing that that boy scout who he like directed to be emotional as he's like walking away from the battlefield where all of his men died like it really making people in the room emotional like i, I just thought that was such a cool moment or at the end with the 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 two bullies how he kind of makes a fool out of one of them and then makes the other one look good but in a way also makes him feel small by how big he made him seem on the screen like really just I think uh, empowering to a character that you're completely bought into, especially as Sam is kind of thrust into the middle of his parents' relationship, or and, and I guess like also his uncle's relationship. Therefore, um, when he's asked to, you know, edit this family, the the film he made of this family trip, and comes to discover that his mom and his uncle seem to have some sort of romance going on that his dad may or may not be aware of or at least uh, explicitly um, acknowledging so it's uh i think not only emotionally really captivating but also just cool to like see spielberg kind of show like where some of these movies or where he first started to kind of like develop his touches for some of these movies i mean it's hard to watch the uh like the boy scout movie that he makes and not think of saving private ryan right like it's it's kind of hard to like watch like some of the um like the the scenes with his sisters and think about like et or things like that like these kids movies and like it's just like i think fascinating to see like him kind of sprinkle parts of his own life that feel so familiar to people and be able to uh you know kind of pull it all together now there's a a lot of big name people in this that we haven't really talked about yet paul dano michelle williams plays parents seth rogan plays the uncle and then a couple of uh you know high profile cameos here and there but tell me what you thought about williams and dana yeah uh 
I was immediately grabbed with Dano just because I think a lot of people have been saying this, but like this is not like Dano's bag. Dano doesn't do normal people. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, like when I think of Paul Dano, I think of the pris- prisoners. I think of the Riddler. I, I think of the Batman. There will be blood this year. There will be blood. Exactly. Um, you know, his milkshake gets drinking up. You know, that, that's what <laughs> I think of. But he's actually incredibly credible as I think this character. I, I liked him quite a bit as the dad, and I think the way he played off Michelle Williams and the way they and and Spielberg develops the the fracturing of his parents' relationship culminating in a fucking gutting divorce scene where all the kids are sobbing and Sammy's just shook on the stairs staring into space the next thing you know he's fantasizing about how he could film the fucking thing like the dork he is mm-hmm. but like it's a child of divorce movie right there you know I'm yep. not a child of divorce so I, I can't relate to it but I, I thought I thought it was quite effective and next thing you know you get Julia Butters the young goat herself yep. back again as one of Sammy's sisters reaming out Sammy's uh, selfish ass so I was like wow I didn't even recognize Julia Butters in the moment I, I didn't notice it till later but I think another like huge part for a very young actor, obviously after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where she busts out. That was awesome. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I like Dano. I like Julia Butters. I like Rogan a lot too. I think yeah. Rogan stealthy, stealthily has established himself as having a bit of dramatic chops. Obviously, he's still a bit on the humorous side with this character, but I liked him. I think the Michelle Williams character is probably the most challenging because it's a character who kind of starts to have um, mental health issues in some way, you know, I think just depression probably broadly. And, you know, like Michelle Williams kind of comes across as like a bit of a, bit of like an airhead early on. And then like, once it gets to the more like clinical side of things, I don't know, it's a bit more up and down, but ultimately like, even if like, I don't know, like it's perhaps a bit of an on the nose performance, Michelle Williams is still like, obviously so talented that you know it's still good enough whenever you're with her yeah i agree with you on dano i thought he was really good and you know kind of playing this more subdued um person and obviously i think spielberg was really trying to highlight how he sees this like very like mechanical logical side that he took from his dad in order to like be able to make films and craft them but this more artistic and um more like uh creative side from his mom who's you know uh, in the the film is a trained pianist um not currently practicing but seems like just detached from her art longing for it in some sense um williams i I think her performance was a bit more up and down for me like like you said i think the reasons you laid out are right but even just like the way that she talks at some points like confused me, you know, like the rest of the family is pretty like, you know, middle America type feeling people, but she seems like she's like out of Brooklyn, you know, at some points like her accent, the way she talks, yeah. she's just like, so such like a different vibe to pretty much everybody else in the family. Maybe that's um, like charitably. Maybe that's like trying to like lay on like a Jewish accent, I suppose. But yeah, Perhaps. I mean, apparently she is supposed to like be playing a person from New Jersey originally. So maybe there's some sort of like connection to that area. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I thought that was pretty great. Uh, or I thought they both were pretty great for the most part. Um, and, and Dana especially feels like maybe he'll start seeing some different roles. 
moving forward. Um, we did have a couple of pretty high profile um, cameos. You know, at the very end of the movie, you get David Lynch's John Ford, which is yeah. like a completely pretty, pretty close <laughs> look, pretty good. Yeah, completely ridiculous scene, but um, you know, funny to to see. And then um, the brother, um, Judder, as yes, Horse. Yeah. yes, I thought he was really great. Um, oh yeah, and just kind of comes in and adds the shot of adrenaline into the movie that I think it kind of needed at that moment. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, and um, and the movie does a good job, I think, of not ever like glossing over like the prevalence of. Sammy's Jewish heritage and how that mm-hmm. has affected him and his family in the past, and I think Boris kind of helps usher that along in some of the things he says uh, to young Sammy. Yeah, th- that's a big scene, you know. Um, even even the John Ford scene, I liked quite a bit. You know, it's like yeah, part of like the Spielberg myth that like he like gets to CBS when he's like twenty years old, and you know he's in John Ford's office for half a second as some nobody. But like, I don't know, like having. Having that scene, obviously, which is creative license, but like having that scene where John Ford was like, you see the horizons, yeah, which you know which one isn't boring, you know, it's like <laughs> it's honestly, boring as shit. Great, <laughs> everything I else, it's it. boring as shit. Fantastic. Also, shout out to Chloe East who plays uh, Monica in this, the love interest of Sam when he gets to the yeah. high school. I thought she was really great, and yeah. uh, I hope to see we her. Got, in we gotta go things. back and pray some more, you know. Good old Bible study, getting getting in the way of things. Isn't that funny? You're a fun boy to kiss for the summer, but I'm going to Texas A&M. It's <laughs> so good. Um, yeah, I mean, any last thoughts on Fablemans? I mean, this seems like it's got a lot of awards written all over it, right? It does. I mean, the, the really mixed box office, I'm curious how that's going to factor in, unless we forget West Side Story also struggled just last year's box office, actually to a quite similar degree here, Fablemans, but... I think it's more about like what could win Best Picture in its place, kind of thing. You know, we're kind of setting up Spielberg to be on like hallowed ground with like the number of high end, uh, you know, trophies he would get at the Oscars. So, I you know I have really no no issue with that. Um, one thing I noticed on Wikipedia, uh, the the Capuchin monkey that is in the film when mm. um, Sammy's mom gets like a monkey to like you know help her with anxiety and whatnot. That is actually a famous acting monkey in Hollywood named Crystal that we have seen in famous scenes like The Hangover 2, The Drug Dealing Monkey, and Naomi Zan. And actually, her acting career began as a baby monkey in George of the Jungle in 1997. That's a 28-year-old monkey. That is a storied career in Hollywood. So shout out Crystal the Monkey. Shout out Crystal the Monkey. Good Um, monkey acting, I would have to say. You know, throwing (laughs) shit around, jumping around, look pretty good. I agree. Um, Dave, before we, we move on, is this your current best picture choice? Uh, in terms of like realistic winners? Yes. I suppose. Um, I'm expecting everything everywhere all wants to get nominated. That would be my selection. Mm-hmm. Um, I also kind of would like Top Gun Maverick to win instead of this, but <laughs> yeah. Good luck yeah, with I mean, that. I'll do like the, like the hardcore awards fair. I, I, I think so. Although... Would not be opposed to Banshees of Inishirin. Hmm, that'd be nice. Um, yeah, I think this is probably the number one, just in terms of populism, palatability, and movie making in general. Also, an amazing movie poster for this. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Um, it's like Sammy walking down the street and like uh, walking towards all the like film reels of the different scenes of his life. Pretty cool. Um, 
Spielberg's almost like a guarantee to get nominated for best director for this. I wonder if there'll be any acting nominations. Maybe Dano. Yeah, um, maybe Dano. The, the the female awards are really competitive as usual. Um, yep. So I don't know, like Judd Hirsch supporting. I don't know. I feel like that's that's a bit of a stretch. Um, yeah. The one scene role, probably not. Um, yeah, we'll see. You know, speaking of best picture contenders, uh, we still don't really know anything about Damien Chazelle's Babylon, but I'm very much anticipating that given Giselle, Giselle's pedigree. So TBD on that. Yeah, so far the the first uh, rev- early reviews of that of Babylon are not as promising as we had hoped, but we'll see. Uh, it hopefully, we're pleasantly surprised by it. Anyways, I think it's time to move on from the Fablemans to somebody that I mentioned earlier in the show, Ryan Johnson, back with a Knives Out story in the Glass Onion, baby. Benoit is back, and uh, Daniel Craig just chewing the scenery. As he as he did in the first Knives Out, a bit of a sensation, right? You, you say the first Knives Out was a movie sensation with kind of the revival of the the murder mystery genre. Four hundred million dollars off an original movie. I, I I would I would hope that qualifies as a sensation in twenty nineteen. Yeah, uh, one of the biggest surprises of the year, a pleasant one at that. Um, which of course makes it all the more puzzling that. Uh, Netflix was like, you know what we don't want is box office for this. We don't want Hell free no. money. We Hell no. We want it on the service. As we've we talked don't... about, Netflix is doing great, Dave. <laughs> Doesn't need the money. Yeah, the, the economics of that is uh, fraught, as I think most people have <laughs> figured out by now. But alas, at least they put it in almost 700 theaters for a measly week around Thanksgiving, because I was very happy to see Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery in the theater, as Ryan Johnson intended. And I had a great time. Yeah, I was gonna ask you. Do do you feel like this one lived up to the first one for you? Yeah, you know, um, it's I think it's a bigger movie and it's a it's a less um straightforward murder mystery or mystery in general storytelling approach, which I wasn't necessarily expecting. Uh, but I think once the key inciting incident in Glass Onion happens, which would be a flashback and a reveal to the audience some information about character, once that happens. The movie is like on eleven until it ends, and yeah, and just I, I overall, think... like you have this bustling A-list ensemble cast once again. Ryan Johnson's talent, a really witty and fun script, like the first one, and now we're also in a uh, gorgeous location. This time we're we're in Greece. You know, mm-hmm. um, there's just so many attributes to enjoy about it. So yeah, I really did like it. Um. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think once you, and I think we'll just go spoilers from here on out. So if you haven't seen it, come back. Yeah, um, it'll be on Netflix uh, at the end of December. So you don't have long to wait. Um, but w- once you find out that uh, Janelle Monet's character is a twin who's undercover within this thing, ev- everything just completely flips. And, you know, it's funny because when, when uh, Andy gets shot, in the film i was like man they really just wasted janelle monet like that i was like Same damn like for me fucking thankless role and then completely spins it around and yeah i agree i think a little bit less um like murder mystery in a sense and a little bit more of a like social commentary i think in a way of um you know high society but also just in terms of like you know these like investors angel investors people wielding money to influence uh maybe not so 
thought out or more nefarious things going on. So um, I, I definitely enjoyed it. I think when it comes to like comparing the this one to the first one, I liked the family aspect of the first one a lot. And I think sure. like how unexpected it was also probably plays a role. Yeah. But um, man, it's 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 like one A one B really. So uh, definitely a lot to enjoy here. Um, obviously, like I mentioned, we have Benoit Blanc, Daniel Craig back is kind of the lead uh, role, kind of doling out the, the, the rock to everybody here. But who were the other actors that really like stood out to you or what characters did you like the most? Yeah, great question. Uh, I mean, I just love to have Edward Norton just doing his thing in a movie, a huge, huge aspect of it, you know. Um, uh, I, think, I think it is cool to see like Edward Norton in a more like mainstream traditional movie because he hasn't really been doing those kind of roles by his choice for quite some time but like i think he really thrived in his role which is kind of like a aloof uh billionaire type who has a higher opinion of himself than he probably should uh, some obvious parallels to people in, in reality uh, i liked him quite a bit um i thought Catherine hahn was really convincing as a uh a politician type um like you said Marjorie Taylor out, green type yeah, yeah. Once uh, Janelle Monet gets to uh, flash back and we learn so much more about the character, and you're seeing there's multiple sides of that performance, I think that's really engaging. Um, also, awesome to see because she is not like a full time actor as mm-hmm. well, although she's doing that more often now. But I, I thought she was really, really quite fun. Um, also, Kate Hudson, I think, was really great as Birdie, and I think the Birdie character is really effective in terms of what it's doing. Like right off the bat, having her being someone having a quarantine party, notably Glass Onion is grounded in COVID, in the pandemic, the height of it. I think that is a cool way to start the film, cool way to, I think, kind of establish a lot of these characters and their points of views and stuff. And I love also how they wipe that away when they get to uh, Norton's Island and you have Ethan Hawke show up for a brief second and give them some, like, miracle vaccine that's not for the public. And, like, that that was quite fun. But, yeah, K-Hudson I enjoyed. Um, Batista, you know, he is what kind of like an Andrew Tate type, right? Um, yep. Pro- probably conceived before Andrew Tate was super mainstream, but you get the idea. You know, uh, masculine men first, right wing kind of person. Batista only has like I think so many moves, but he is quite convincing and kind of like the macho, like can make fun of himself style. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what this character was written to be. So I think he was pretty good. I wanted more Jessica Hendwick though. You know, hmm. I, th- I think she's probably like the least served of the famous people on this movie. Or she only gets so much to do. You know, she's Birdie's assistant. What's her biggest scene? Like one of those like one on ones she has with Birdie that like Blanc or Monet like spy on. Like other than that, like she, I don't know. I was kind of hoping for more from her. But yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, Craig. I, I love Craig just kind of letting his hair down. Yeah. With, with this role and just having a good time. Yeah, you, you can just tell. Craig really loves it. I mean, right, right from the get go when he's playing. Uh, oh, wow, what the fuck is that game? He's playing Among Where, Us. With, yeah, Among Us. Thank you. <laughs> and with Jabbar, Natasha Leone, Serena Williams. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And no, was this Sondheim? It was someone like that. Yeah. Yeah. But anyways, older woman I didn't recognize. Having Blanc, the world's greatest detective, being ass at a detective video game. So funny. so funny yeah that that was great and just seeing him like in the bathtub being like he's uh he's like depressed because he doesn't have a case to solve because the world is 
you know shut down right now really funny right. also no uh shout out hugh grant just yes. getting like a two second cameo as blanc's partner like yep. great it. stuff um yeah and also uh just a couple other like fun things apparently joseph gordon levitt uh was the voice of miles's clock which I never would have noticed, oh, but just doing some research that. mentioned that. Um, yeah, you know, I agree with you. I think like the the one I liked the least was probably Leslie Odom Jr. Um, you know, I, I feel like his transition to uh, film has just not been as uh, captivating as I was hoping, especially after he really just shot out of a cannon with um, you know Hamilton fame. But yeah, he hasn't um, had like that that like great role yet, you know. Mm-hmm. No, he, hopefully it happens for him. Uh, yeah, Han is always great. But yeah, Ed, Ed Norton was like really just fun to have around. And even though I thought the mystery aspect of it, like it felt pretty obvious it was going to come back around to be Miles by the end. I still just like that he got so much time to just like vamp and be ridiculous. And yeah, he's just so fun to have when he's in this kind of role. And I, I think like the red herrings in the movie, you know, like the, the qualities of a mystery film as you as you know them, like there's still, I think, a lot of fun. And mm-hmm. I like the way Glass Onion goes where it's like it's all set. See, the way I think they kind of trick you, right? Like they set it up about it being uh, Miles. Uh, we're going to solve his murder, you know, doing his pandemic fun game with his buddies. And mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're expecting Miles to actually get killed and then they have to figure out who did it, right? And that's actually not what happens. Like, I thought mm-hmm. that was like a really like nice twist on audience expectation. And then they're at the dinner table, and you have Blanc completely spoil. Yeah, Miles fantastic. Grand fake murder, the funniest thing ever. What a moment! And, and Norton's just like you, motherfucker. He's so pissed. That yeah. that was amazing. The way Blanc is so proud of himself, so excited to do it. And then again, they they flip it later when you realize that. It's all part of Block's plan to ruin it early because there's more going on with the movie than you're led to believe. Yeah, no, I, I thought that was really, really smart. And yeah, just fun throughout all the twists that really worked for me. Um, I, I, I thought it was like fun to see the flashbacks of all of it. Yeah, you know, I think overall it's it's hard to like really pick apart like any aspect of the movie. It's just like by far, I think one of the best investments Netflix has made movie wise. I can just see this being something any pretty much anyone can throw on and just enjoy. Um, also just want to shout out uh, Jeremy Redder and uh, Jared Leto, who both get like, not, not necessarily cameos, but just like product placement. Uh, the, the Jared Leto kombucha and the Jeremy Renner um, hot sauce. <laughs> right. Just thought that was really great. Um, yeah. It, it was That's really com- just a fun experience. Kombucha. Jared Leto's kombucha. <laughs> Huge I thought you didn't drink. <laughs> How many of those have you had? Like nine. Yeah. And then her being like really perceptive when she's lit was so funny too. It's like, she keep drinking. That was great. Yeah. I was wondering, uh, you know, Monet, she seems primed to maybe take over for uh, Craig in this role, especially if he like takes her on as like an understudy moving forward. I think there is going to be a Knives Out 3 or at least there is. talk was, of it. So. That, was part of the, that, no, that was part of the deal. That's uh, right. Netflix paid big money, and Lionsgate and Ryan Johnson sold two and three to Netflix. So we will be getting a third Knives Out mystery at some point soon. Um, I hadn't thought of that, of not only Craig returning, but Monet returning as well. That is interesting. Um, I'll be open to that. Me too. Yeah, I think she'd be a perfect person to pass it on to, honestly. Um, yeah, I mean, it, if you think about, like, 
the locations, right? So they went from a wealthy, like Westchester, Long Island, yeah. maybe like Cape Cod neighborhood to yeah. like Greece Island. Area, that house. What, where do you think they go next? I think they go like a ski lodge type of deal. Ooh, now that's a good idea. See, I think this is a very similar thought to where the White Lotus should go for season three, which of course has been officially renewed by HBO. Same kind of deal, right? White Lotus, Hawaii, mm-hmm. Italian Riviera. Where next? Knives Out's the same thing. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I would love it to be somewhere stark and flashy, right? I don't know. Somewhere in Asia, yeah. perhaps, easily comes to mind. Um, but Ski Lodge, I don't know, that, that sounds pretty cool. Kind of like nod to Bond there as well. Bond, of course, has some famous skiing stuff. Yeah, that's pretty good. Maybe like in the Swiss Alps or something. Oh, man, that'd oh. be great. Yeah. Love that. Yeah, I'm trying to think of somewhere else that might make sense. I mean, maybe like a super yacht, right? Like something ridiculous like that is a good. Yeah, we're pretty oceanic with this one, literally on an island in the Mediterranean. (laughs) You get that (laughs) joke where it's like it's not even the Aegean Sea. He doesn't even know where he is on the map. Yeah. (laughs) Oh man, when when first of all the the glass onion by the Beatles being the playout song was great, but when they walk up and he's playing blackbird and he's like yeah this is the actual the actually the guitar paul wrote this on and kate <laughs> hudson's character's like oh my god and then he just throws it it's like oh she's really great why is your car way up here yeah there's nowhere to drive it on the island block oh my god norton was really on one with this but the script yeah. also really helped him out like i think like they really wrote i think a lot of these characters well even someone who doesn't have a whole lot to do like a madeline klein's character like she's set up he's like mm-hmm. oh she's just like Batista's uh, arm candy character, but then she actually gets a little, a few moments with Monet to like be about. No, actually, she's like independent person trying to focus on her brand, taking advantage of the situation while while it's available to her. It's like, oh, okay. Like there was at least a little bit under the hood with even this ancillary character, you know. So yep, yeah, just a, just a great time. And I think like the first one, definitely a movie that by its genesis as a mystery film rewards the second watch once you know what's coming you can look for and appreciate fuller the, the red herrings and the suggestions and stuff like that you know uh, yeah i'm looking forward to watching stuff it. was was really fun with this one oh uh, yeah shutting oh, opening and shutting you know at all these notions and then with the google around at the end and how like the movie doesn't really end with a reveal so much as a like a takedown a personal mm-hmm. takedown like the only way they really could could get them you know mm-hmm. so yeah quite satisfying for sure um yeah go go watch uh glass onion and knives out story when it hits your netflix screen this friday but dave what do we got for next week all right next week not the hardest week in the world but we'll do our best new music from rm of bts the second bts solo album this year looking forward to that he is my favorite bts member also Willow is starting on Disney Plus. Andor has ended. A new show begins. John Chu's Willow. Are you a Willow guy? The Warwick Davis film? Fantasy film? Because you're going to be now. New show yeah, I was going to say, I now. will be. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Sight and Sound poll. Ten years have passed once again. New refresh coming on December 1st. Looking forward to looking into that and seeing uh, what has changed in the, net, the last ten years with film. We'll have to get into there and yeah, I think we're gonna get to Devotion, a film we 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 didn't get to this week, but I think definitely needs to be seen. Glenn Powell and Jonathan Majors, how could you not watch that? So yeah, 
Maybe SZA drops an album this this Friday. We're not really sure about that, but we're obviously eagerly anticipating that when it does come out. So we always find things to talk about, and of course, this season is right around the corner. Right around the corner. So hit that subscribe on YouTube YouTube.com slash nostalgiapod. Also follow our playlist at now or <laughs> nostalgia best of twenty twenty two on Spotify. Jeez, uh, it's going right to the link tree on our Twitter at nostalgiapod, so you can listen to the podcast any way you want to. And uh, yeah, if you if you want to tell your friends and family about us, that'd be a great holiday gift for them, especially since December is next week. We'll catch you. What? I said the pod is free. Great gift. Yeah, great gift. And uh, good for the wallet as well. We'll uh, we'll catch you next week. Yeah.